Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guests today are comedians, actors, and improv legends, Larry Hankin and Paul Wilson. And now, your Sexy Boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And I'm Sexy. Uh, no, I mean, I'm Phil. Yes, you are. <laughs> and today, uh, we, we've gotten out of our bunkers because we are going to have a special show that we recorded earlier before the pandemic hit with uh, two of my dear friends, Larry Hankin and Paul Wilson. Uh, and we'll tell you who they are. If you don't know, you're going to be fascinated. They got so many great stories. And we, we met at a restaurant called Shay J's. Old school in Santa Monica, down by the pier, where, oh, it has intrigue. We sat at the Kissinger table, also known as Table 10, where allegedly the Pentagon Papers were slid over uh, by Daniel Ellsberg. Yeah, and, and also uh, Kennedy had a little tryst there with somebody, right? And Warren Beatty did his casting work in there yeah, for, for shampoo. shampoo. <laughs> for shampoo. Imagine uh, what those sessions were like. The reason it's called the Kissinger Table is because Shay J adjoins the Rand Corporation. Yeah, that's or, right. Yeah, the Masters of War. And during the Vietnam era, Kissinger, as Secretary of State, would also often come out to do strategic planning for the Vietnam War, and he would come over to Shay J and have dinner. Yeah, Kippa. Yeah, and that was his favorite table. It was his hangout. So we decided to have some lunches with friends, and it was sort of the germ of the idea for this uh, podcast. And what we're going to share are wonderful little snippets of very funny, interesting stories about their history and, as a result, show business history. Yeah, and a little taste of boomer history as well. Yeah. Why don't we set it up first by explaining who our guests are. Paul Wilson. Yeah, Paul Wilson uh, is probably best known for his long-running uh, role in Ch- on Cheers, okay, sitting there at the bar with all these other wonderful characters. And he also was on the Larry Sanders show playing Larry's accountant. He's a very accomplished uh, improvisational comedic actor Yeah, and, and known for his character work. And uh, he also he did a film called The Office. The original feature film in 1999. Yeah, very, very funny, interesting film. So uh, you'll recognize his voice most likely when he starts talking, because he doesn't sound like Larry Hankin. He was uh, recently seen on The Connors. Oh, he did a Connors, did he? Oh. We invited an old, old friend of his, which I had no idea how far they went back, Larry Hankin, who you would know as well. Well, most recently, uh, he appeared in the film El Camino, which was the sequel to Breaking Bad, and he was in Breaking Bad, too. He played Old Joe, the junkyard owner. That's right. When we had lunch, we asked Paul and Larry about the times in San Francisco when they met in the early to mid-60s, which was the, as they say, the ground zero for the countercultural movement. That's right, and they were both in, I guess you could say, competing uh, improvisational companies. Paul was in the Pitchell the brothers. Mitchell players, not the, the Mitchell brothers. In the Mitchell no. brothers. <laughs> not the Mitchell brothers. He wasn't in the Mitchell brothers. <laughs> you know, he's in the Pitchell players. <laughs> and uh, Larry was in the committee. Committee, the committee. Very well known, very famous. Yeah. Both companies really at the nascence of uh, uh, improvisationary theater, and they really they really helped establish improv in America. Those two companies. They drew a, a really nice picture of what the scene was like back then. We're sitting with uh, our dear friends, Paul Wilson and Larry Hankin, uh, who, uh, with whom our friendship goes back, or at least mine does, goes back a long way. Way back. But not as long as the friendship between Larry and Paul. Yes, I knew Larry in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, an improv time. He was very different then. Uh, how so? You were much younger. And, ah, okay, uh, thank uh, you. Larry was very, very funny. You guys yeah, were not in the same improv company, right? No. Although we have worked together on stage. Oh, yeah. But I was in the committee and you were in the pitcher players. Pitcher players, yeah. And, and we guys were blocks from each other. Yeah, it was very yeah. close. And, yeah. You know, and that's where we, you know, went for our master seminars. We would go over there. I went out practically every night when I was in uh, town. Yeah, and I used to go over to your show. Yeah. You know, and, and you sat we, in with us a few times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 so it was like a very friendly yeah. uh, relationship. When was this? This was uh, 1966. Wow. San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah. San Francisco, uh, the 60s, you know, that everybody has a romantic vision that that was the birthplace of 
so much of the of, hate Ashbury, uh, the hate Ashbury movement, the, whole the hippie the, movement, the, the Grateful Dead, and you guys were there. They came to our Monday nights. We had a one night that was you know free. We were off on Monday nights, so wow. the committee rented or opened up the, the Monday night to anybody who wanted it, who, who could pull a crowd. And the Grateful Dead was there, and Baba Ramdas used to do a Monday Ooh. night, and everybody uh, who uh, Lenny Bruce would stop in. Wow. Just anybody who was anybody in the 60s when they came through touring San Francisco would do a Monday night. Wow. So we, and we all agreed, we in the committee all agreed that the 60s came through our door, the Love and Spoonful, and right up the street, four, uh, four stores from where our entrance was, was the Peppermint Tree uh, Lounge. And that's where all the rock and roll bands were. Wow. So, so all the rock bands were four doors away, and they would come in to visit us. And, uh, you know, Sandy Bull would rent uh, the, the Monday night. Uh, whatever band came through, if they wanted to try something new, they would do a Monday night. So we would just we'd just sit there, and here comes the '60s. Oh wow! Oh, it was just amazing, man. And anybody, even the pitcher players, or anybody who lived in San Francisco, was uh, available to see the '60s. You know, whoever was in the '60s. That's great. It was amazing time. I first came to San Francisco in early the early '70s, and to me, it was the wild frontier. Yeah, uh, and it had such a you know a strong character to it. Oh yeah. How would you characterize the essence of what San Francisco was back in the mid '60s compared to now? Well, I grew up in San Francisco, so maybe I should. I we moved there when I was in first grade, and at that time, it was really like an outpost. Yeah. I mean, you had a sense of a Western city. This was not like the Eastern big cities. Although it had tall buildings and concentration of population, and it was sort of the financial center of the West Coast. Yeah, that's right. Um, still, it had that kind of raw, you know, distant quality. And of course, everything was more expensive west of the Rockies, and all that stuff was going on there, yeah. you know. Uh, but uh, but then gradually, of course, the, the, then the beatnik thing happened, which yeah. which sort of was a very important precursor to the hippie thing. more, and of course, more than a precursor to the hippie thing. Yeah. And San Francisco wasn't really all that old because when you go to Virginia City, Nevada, yeah. and you see the big hole in the ground, uh -huh. the story is that William Hurst sunk his last $10,000 he had to find some silver, and that's where he struck the mother load, and he said, that's the pit that built San Francisco. Wow. And you're right, it wasn't that long ago, and in yeah. fact, the same drunk is there. <laughs> <laughs> it always had sort of a frontier, but it had a Victorian feel to it because of its age. Yeah. Do you ever thought about why the scene happened in San Francisco? The beat sort of laid down the sub-flooring in North Beach. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were all these places that were actually great places, long before the hippies. City Lights Bookstore had been there for a mm -hmm, long time. That's right. And uh, Discovery Used Bookstore and, and Vesuvio and uh, Tosca and all these places to go. And the old Spaghetti Factory, which was a great place. And also because it's always been a very cosmopolitan city. It's a big seaport. It was at that time. Now Oakland is. But anyway. Berkeley. That's what started the free speech movement. Mario Savio got on the steps of the Berkeley University and he made his big speech and that changed everything because for the first time the Examiner and the Chronicle picked that up oh. and for some reason we were attached to it because the, the, the for the first year I guess we were just an outlier satirical company and then all of a sudden we were the, in the middle of the six, uh, the 60s and the hippies yeah. and the Mario Savio because of the newspaper and and Berkeley. And so one day I, I, I took a break just before the show opened. Uh, we were always, we've been, been inside for a couple of hours. And I just walked outside for some air. And there is a, a line around the block. Whoa. I'm not just saying around the corner. I'm saying around the block. So we walked all the way around the block and the end of the line was right before you get to the door where people were going in from the other direction. It was around the block. And, and, and from then on, we were just cool, man. We, and so that was, to me, the, the birth of this, uh, the committee and the 60s as far as my consciousness was. And we were in the middle of it. And then we just opened the Monday night to people. Yep. And they heard about the committee. And then 10 years later... 
because we were so, quote, hip and uh, uh, always being compared to Second City, who was famous by then, you mm. know, um, we, uh, people started flying up because in then, uh, around the 62 or whatever, it cost 15 to $25 round trip to PSA. fly from L.A. to San Francisco and back. Wow. So the, 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 the movers and shakers of Hollywood, this is so cool. The movers and shakers, they would fly up, have dinner, see a show, stay in a hotel, fly back the next morning. We were being auditioned for the heaviest hitters in L.A., which we couldn't get into right. if we went to L.A. I was hired by a Penny Marshall, who saw me and the committee, and that was my first TV gig. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, and our guests today are Paul Wilson and Larry Henkin. And they're sharing stories about their golden years in the improvisational scene in San Francisco. But even before San Francisco, Larry, who was a native of New York City, had a really interesting background already. He started with Fred Willard, the great comedian, in the village in New York City. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Hankin was discovered by Charles Jaffe and Jack Rollins, who added Hankin to their client roster, which also included Woody Allen. They soon booked him to uh, club dates, opening up for Woody Allen, Richard Pryor, Miles Davis. Amazing. And and Larry was sort of considered a Lenny Bruce type. Yep. Because he was mm -hmm. volatile and he wasn't afraid to say what was on his mind, which is still holds true today. In this story, he talks about an average day hanging out with Woody when they were all starting out. Cool. My manager at the time when I was doing stand-up was Woody Allen's manager, Jack Rollins. Yeah. So I used to go uptown to their office and just visit and hang and you know uh louise lasser mary hartman mary hartman's star woody allen would be there there was a couch he had an, a little office with him and uh, and charlie jaffe and louise lasser every time she went there she would just do something weird and they would allow her like one day she said while we were sitting there and then woody is silent on one end of the couch i'm on the other end of the couch and Louise is sitting in the middle, and and then we're just watching them field phone calls, you know, for their other clients. I don't know. <laughs> we're just sitting there, nobody's saying anything, and then Louise Lasser says, "This wall is really dirty," and she says, "Can I can I wash it?" And and Jack says. Uh, uh, okay. She says, no, no, don't get up. I'll, I'll do it. And she goes up. She comes back with a bowl of water and soap and, and a sponge. And she stands on the couch and starts washing this wall and reaching over Woody and over me. And she's washing. And then finally she says, oh, I got to go. And she just puts it there and she leaves. And for the next six months, that remains this, a circular washed wall. And they never changed it. They never asked her to finish the job or anything. Larry was so full of great stories and fish and chips that you decided it would probably be good to follow up with a one-on-one -on -one with him. What I found fascinating about Larry was that he is very on the edge. He's not ever predictable. You, he speaks his mind yeah. to the degree that he's actually had a sort of tortured life as a performer. He will be the first to admit that he has chips on his shoulder. He's known to be difficult on the set as he says, is prone to inappropriate behavior and has impulse control issues. What, give up show business? Yeah. So we kind of went down that path together through telling notable stories of his career. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. And how it's really made a career for him, but has also created great turmoil, beginning with his very first break, which was to play opposite Clint Eastwood in the movie, 1979 movie, Escape from Alcatraz. I get this call from my agent, and he goes, okay, Larry, get down to Warner Brothers right away. You gotta get down there right now. Uh, it's Clint Eastwood's new movie, Escape from Alcatraz. It's a big movie. Uh, I, they don't, I don't know what the part is, and I'm asking him, you know, well, how can I audition? I don't have any sides or anything like that. Oh, they'll give you everything down there. They'll tell you what the part is. They'll give you your sides. Just get down there right away. Under these circumstances, there's only one reason why you get got to get down there really fast. It's because somebody just got fired. So uh, I'm going down there with a chip on my shoulder because I got an attitude problem anyway, a priori, way from the get-go. I've always had it. And so it just, uh, I go in, 
I get there. There's nobody there. I knew, all right, somebody just got fired. There's no other people around. And I'm sitting in this waiting room, and there's all there is is a secretary, uh, you know, somebody, a greeter, whatever. She's ignoring me. I'm sitting there. I'm ignoring her. I, I, oh, I think she even asked me, what, why are you here? Uh, I escaped from Alcatraz. I got an audition or something. She says, oh, yeah, well, yeah, they'll, they'll come out and call you in a couple of minutes. So I'm just sitting there, and, she's, and I go up to her again. I go, is there any sides or anything? I mean, I don't know what part I'm here for. She says, you don't have any sides. Oh, and she goes, well, we don't have any sides. And she goes, here, and she gives me the, uh, the screenplay, which is, you know, 90 pages. <laughs> and I don't know what part or anything like that. <laughs> so I go, well, do you know what part? No, I, I don't know. What, so I, I'm thinking, what good does this do me? So I took the screenplay, and I just put it in my lap. You know, I, there's nothing I can do. I don't know what I'm up for. And then, just as I sit down with the screenplay in my lap, the door opens and this uh, woman, uh, elderly woman, says, uh, you Larry Hankin? Yeah, are you ready? I go, yeah, Now, by, by now the chip is gone and now I'm, this is going nowhere. I'm not going to get this part. I don't, it, this is too different, too weird, it's too obscure. So I go, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm ready. Uh, knowing that I'm not ready at all. So I go in and I sit down, and in the room, this empty room, is an, again, an empty room with three chairs all kind of facing one another, kind of around a, a table that's not there. And uh, so she sits down. It, it turns out, I find out later, she's a very big casting lady in L.A., you know, really big. Well, it's a Clint Eastwood movie. It's a tentpole movie, you know. So, yeah. And there's the director, Don Siegel, who's a great director. He's a very, I don't know, kind of a benevolent old man, you know, elder gentleman, white hair. And I know his reputation. He's done a lot of black and white movies that he's really great. He's worked with, you know, a lot of stars. Um, so I respect him. And he said, oh, have a seat. And I sit down. He goes, uh, what are you here for? I said, I, I don't know anybody. Nobody's told me anything. I don't know what my part is. I don't I don't have any sides. I, I don't know what's going on. So he goes, uh, oh, okay. Well, there's two parts left. Uh, Charlie Butts, uh, he's a convict. And then there's uh, the uh, one of the guards. Which one do you want to audition for? And I go, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. And, and then he's, he starts talking to this lady like I'm not there. Well, you know. He has to beat up Clint. Um, I don't know if he can beat up Clint. Uh, Larry, can you beat up Clint? I go, I, um, no. He goes, no, he can't beat up Clint. Um, what about what about Charlie Butts, he says to me. You want to do with Charlie Butts? I go, I, I don't know. He says, well, uh, you want to try? I go, I, I don't know if you use the word try. Maybe do you want to audition? <laughs> a little offensive. You want to try, kid? <laughs> I go, yeah. So he says, all right, I'll, I'll read with you. And he pulls out another script. I still have that script. Turn to page 76. So he says, it's just, let's just read this page together. So it's, you know, it's, uh, I think it's Clint Eastwood and Charlie Butts are talking. And he says, you want, you want time? You want to go outside? And I go, no, no. This is not going anything like any audition I've ever been to in San Francisco here. So I'm thinking, this is just, he's just practicing on me. That's what's going on. So I'm, I'm getting very down now. I, no, I'll just read it with you. Oh, cold reading. Okay, fine. All right, here you go. Bump, and he goes, ba 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 Okay, uh, thank you, Larry. Okay. She says, just a second. He goes, oh, okay, hold it, Larry. What What's going on? He says, Charlie Butts is short. He has red hair, freckles. He wears glasses, and uh, he's rather overweight. And he looks at me, he looks at her, and he says, yeah, but uh, the audience doesn't have the screenplay. <laughs> so I thought, all right, this guy's cool. Okay, and then he turns to me and he says, you got the part, okay? Any questions? And I go, no. <laughs> and he goes, what's the matter? Nothing. I was just staring at him because I, I thought he was, man, don't, Put me on, you, you know. And that's that's the look I was looking at him with. And he said, you, you don't believe me, do you? 
And he and I, I said no. And he said, I tell you what, go home, sit by the phone and see what happens. I go, okay. He says, get out of here. I go, okay, fine. And I just split, you know. And then I get home 45 minutes later, you know, and I'm sitting by the phone about 10 minutes later. Phone rings. Well, you got the part. Uh, you must have done an amazing audition. I go, well, uh, it's a long story. So then they, they shave off my hair because I'm a convict now and I'm Charlie Butts. And, uh, and everything is fine and I love it because it's on Alcatraz. We shot the whole thing on Alcatraz. And, and it was really great because I was there like for three months. I was watching every day. I, you know, I would have to go out and just wait because I always watched Clint's scenes and if there was any kind of tricks or anything like that, I would watch it. Most of my scenes were with Clint Eastwood. I was kind of his sidekick. And now Clint liked to do it once, and that was it. And if you, if even Don Siegel, who he had worked with many times, wanted to do it again, another take, he would have to explain to Clint. He'd say, well, why are we doing it again? So, well, the camera was jiggling, or the light blue, or uh, I don't know, one of the actors tripped. Uh, you know, just so something. And you, he'd have to explain it, and then Clint would, would do it. And I was standing right next to him. It was just me and him. And both of them would have this conversation like I wasn't even there. Like, you know, how is that for you, Clint? You know, you want to do it again? And Clint would say, that's fine. You know, should, should we, can we move on? Um, yeah, okay. And I would just be standing there like, you know, like a wooden Indian. And I was starting to get, again, PO'd. And this went on for like two, three, four, five days where I was just being ignored. He wouldn't, never ask me anything, never gave me a direction, nothing. He would just talk to Clint. So finally, one time, he comes up to Clint and he says, uh, how's that for you, Clint? And Clint says, uh, that was fine for me, you know. And then I just spoke up. I said, well, it wasn't fine for me. Um, um, I'd like to do it again. I think I can do it better. And Clint just looked at me and says, well, I don't think I can do it better. And he walked away. <laughs> so, so I thought, hey, man, I just been dissed, and the crew was his, and they all smirked. I could hear them smirk. One guy laughed, because he heard that. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna be in the barrel for this. I mean, they would just turn on you, his, his crew. And if you were in the barrel, if Clint didn't like you, or if he started making fun of you, they all started making fun of you. And I had seen that, and I go, no, all right, not me. So I thought, I gotta get, back at him I got to get out of the barrel because even as I walked away after we shot that scene some of the guys said hey blah 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 you know what do you do? it was just not cool and finally one day it was about a week or two later it just happened and I don't even think Clint Eastwood was aware of what he was saying I think he just said it just like he said anything else Don Siegel comes up to him and says uh, how's that for you Clint and Clint said verbatim he said um i don't know um i'd like to do it again i think i can do it better what and so i just said well i don't think i can and i walked away but we were on the c tier which is those tiers well the camera was blocking one way to go away i couldn't walk into a cell so i had to walk and the door was way down there at the other end. And that was the only way I could walk, is away on this tier down there. And I just kept walking, and there was total silence back there. And I just kept, and as I'm walking, I see the door is getting further and further away. And I just, I said, just keep walking, Larry. You're fired. Don't turn around. Just get to the freaking door. And finally, just as I got to the door, I heard Clint say, Hey, Larry, come back. <laughs> just come here. And then I heard everybody laugh, you know, and they just come on. It's cool. Okay, fine. So I was his friend from then on. I, I was totally his friend. Okay, so I made my peace with Clint, but I had yet to deal with Don Siegel. I'm playing cards with some of the crew who are not working either. And all of a sudden I see, there's about five guys in me. And I see the other five guys look up behind me. So I look around and it's Don Siegel and he's standing behind me and he's got a kind of a dour look on his face. And he goes, what are you doing, Larry? And I go, I'm playing cards. He says, uh, you know, you got a scene coming up. I go, yeah. He says, it's a, it's a crying scene. It's that crying scene at the end where they leave, behind, leave you behind. I go, yeah, I know. He says, well, uh, 
I think you got about two hours. You ready? Ready for what? And he goes, well, to cry. I need you to cry. I go, yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't know what was going on. I, I, who, what is he? I'm playing cards. Look, Larry, um, have you rehearsed or anything like that? No. Well, okay, fine. But, uh, you know, if I were you, I just, I mean, if you can't cry, just, you just got to slap yourself around. But I need you to cry, so. And then he walks away. I got to deal with this. So I go back into my dressing room. I've never cried. I'm not an actor. I'm a stand-up comedian. You know, so I try to cry. And it's not happening. You know, I'm trying to think sad thoughts. I'm, it's not working. <laughs> so I'm, gonna, I'm slapping myself. I'm literally slapping myself. The side of my face is red. No, it's not, not working. So I go, okay, I'm going to get fired. I mean, that's the fallback position. All right, I'm going to get fired. It just calms me down, you know, because I don't have to go through all this craziness. So I just go back out, and I'm just wandering around for the next two hours. He sees me. Don Siegel sees me wandering around. He goes, hey, Larry. You okay? Yeah, yeah. This is uh, so you you you'll be okay to cry, right? Yeah. I go. Wait a minute. No, I should talk to him. I I should express this, you know. So I see him walking away, and here's what I'm thinking. Okay, there's got to be a good reason why I'm not crying. If I tell him I can't cry, it's not that I can't cry. Okay, I got it. I I mean, it's, this is cool. It's backstory. So I uh, said, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah, yeah, what? Look, um, about the, the, the crying uh, scene of Charlie's, listen, um, yeah, I did this pretty extensive backstory on the character, and um, this character, Charlie wouldn't cry in this situation. Really? Why? Well, I mean, it's, it's not that, you see, he doesn't, you know, it's not... Um, I, he just wouldn't have thought of it that, that far ahead. So your character wouldn't cry in this situation. Uh -huh. Okay, oh, just a second. Carol, and Carol was his AD. He was his sec like his secretary. She just followed him around. She comes walking over. She says, um, I just want you to listen to this. Larry, tell uh, Carol what you just told me about uh, the character in the scene. So I'm puzzled. She's puzzled. I go, well... Um, what I told him was I did a backstory and, uh, and my character wouldn't cry in this situation. And that, I mean, that, that's really about it. And she's positive. She says, uh-huh. And so we both look at him and then Don Siegel turns to Carol and he says, uh, okay, now, Carol, you tell me, what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> and then he turns to me and he goes, look, Larry, in 20 minutes, I need you to cry. So... I would get on it, Larry. If you have to slap the hell out of yourself, I don't care. Okay? Thank you, Larry. And he walks away. I go, oh, my God, man. He just, like, unloaded on me. So I, okay, fine. I'm, I'm being fired. Cool. Okay, so, all right, AD comes. You're up, Larry. Okay, fine. So how how, how you doing, Larry? He says to me, the director. I'm fine. So I'm always fine. <laughs> Everything's always copacetic it's fine okay just sit down there yeah. all right I, I need a choker man get real up in there right so the the camera is and if you look in the movie the camera is about i would say 10 inches from my face and I, i'm just looking at my reflection in the lens and he says okay you ready larry yeah yeah i'm ready okay so he says, all right camera you know rolling sound action larry <laughs> <laughs> I cut. Okay, bring it in. What's what's going on? Ralph comes over, another crew member. He's got this, it's not a perfume bottle, but it's got one of those squeezers on the end, like you squeeze a... It's a bottle with liquid in it. And he comes over and he points it right in my face. I said, what is that? He says, it's wintergreen. Don't worry about it. All right, ready and action. And all of a sudden he's... Tears come pouring out of my eyes. And I go, <laughs> he goes, cut. Larry, great. That was terrific. Thank you very much. Okay, we're moving on. And that was it. <laughs> my, my big... The whole time he was putting me on, the entire afternoon, the entire evening. 
You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with our special guests, Paul Wilson and Larry Hankin. <laughs> we'll be right back. Giant Toad Supermarket. Attention all money savers in the Richmond, Syracuse, Tri-City area and all you wonderful people out at Ed Siegelman's Ground Zero Equal Opportunity Apartments. Yes, our manager Darwin Paul has opened up his pants early this Christmas to let you in for the biggest in unhealable Deep Cut Discounts. Now, agglutinated beans, giant and hypo size, two for 47 cents. Ma Rainey's, moleskin cookies, buy the tin at $1.87. Save on peach pits, this week only, see our boy at the back. Dog food for the doggy? Well, doggone it, we've got all six varieties of martyr brand, kidney and beef offal. Talk to Charlie Cranepool, Ed's dad, at our liquor department about choice USDA bourbon and rump roast cocktail party mix. Last and least, there's plenty of seasick fresh produce at our vegetable counter. Don't worry about the flies, we won't weigh them. So wary shoppers, take the lift out of life and drop your load on the giant toad. We give double discounted multiple identity Wow, you know, Ted, that, that sounded familiar. Where did that break come from? It, you might have heard of the Firesign Theater. The, the Frankenstein what? Yeah. We've been featuring throughout our shows drop-ins from the Firesign Theater, and now you can get an entire compilation. Stand Up Records just released our first vinyl record release in 35 years. It's a double LP set, limited edition, dope humor of the 70s. And it's basically taken from all of the radio shows that we did during our underground radio years here in L.A. from like 69 to 72, something like that. I can't really remember because I was there. Yes. Or as Carl Gottlieb, uh, also a member of the committee who worked with Larry Hankin and later went on to write a little movie called Jaws. Well, Carl Gottlieb famously said, if you could remember the 60s, you weren't there. Bob Dylan's back with the biggest surprise of all. He's learned to sing, sing real good and real high class. He's singing opera, that's right. It's Bob Dylan at the Met. Here Bobby's singing Oreos from Scorsese, Coppola, B-Day, all in barbarian and German. It's just like the 60s. You can't understand a word Bob is singing, and that's when he's at his best. It's a beautiful album with pictures of Bob wearing a turban, a cowboy hat, a yarmulke, and a crown of thorns. And who's that singing the love duet with him from Car Wash? Joan Baez. Jim Neighbors. So if you're a Dylan fan... And who wasn't? Here's one record you won't have to take to church and smash with a hammer. Available at Crap's Last Tapes, the Cutout Circus, and all 93 shoplifters' markets. It's Bob Dylan. At the Met. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with special guests, comedians, actors, and improv legends, Larry Hankin and Paul Wilson. To hear all the Sexy Boomer shows and get your hands on our Sexy Boomer bumper sticker, visit SexyBoomerShow.com. Look for Sexy Boomer Show on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast right now by clicking the subscribe button in your podcast player. Back to Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guests, actors and comedians, Larry Hankin and Paul Wilson. Hey there, this is Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. And today we're talking with two wonderful improvisationary actors, uh, the great Paul Wilson and the even less great Larry Hankin. You know, Larry admits that he's not so much of an actor as he is an improviser. And one of the reasons is, is because he can't memorize lines. Oh. And as a result, it creates great anxiety. <laughs> and Larry had another harrowing experience when he got the role in the landmark TV series Breaking Bad. He played the role of the junkyard owner, Old Joe. Old Joe. He reprised the role in the sequel, movie, El Camino. That's right. <laughs> as you know, Breaking Bad is so meticulous yeah. And he was immediately thrust into an agonizing experience. Oh, boy, that sounds like fun. Clint Eastwood and Brian Cranston are almost exactly the same artistic-wise. They're just wonderful to work with. And they're very professional, and they always come prepared. And if they tell you something, you know, take it to the bank. Yeah, so, I mean, but John Candy, the comedians are just wonderful. John Candy is so great. Uh, Steve Martin, great. Be, here's why. Because you all have the same thing. They're, they're giving. The, the hint I got with Clint Eastwood was, and that, and that was a secret of great actors. He didn't try to be better than you. They're just performing what they've learned. 
You can't tell that this is a learned thing, that this is a thing they practice. It looks like, oh, it came out of their character until you see like two or three of them, you know, performing in the same, uh, the same way. Like any excellent work, it should be invisible. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I, I worked with Clint so much that I just, holy cow, he's not a great actor. He's a great cork. In other words, he would give the scene to me. He would go, you know, Larry, you want to go? Go. Do whatever you want. And he would just be listening and he would float on it. He would just go up with you. Like if I had a lot of energy, he would float on that energy. He doesn't need to, you know, go. He just float on the energy and he just come at me right there. Right where I left off. Boom. He would go back there. Or, you know, if he didn't want to go up there, he would stay down. It seemed like he never gave out any energy. He was just, you know, all right, pitch. He was a batter. Pitch. They do not act. They only react. You know, what is that leery thing? You know, be here now. So you're never really talking past each other. No, you're always talking to one another, and you know there's no contest here. Yeah. We're not trying to be better. He's not trying to be the lead in the scene or trying to lead the scene. He's got the scene down. I mean, that's the one thing I never have because of my dyslexia is uh, I, I never I, unless I've done like in a play where you rehearse it over and over and over again and okay I can cement it in there Lucille Ball nearly chopped my head off for making a mistake so that she goes a little too far I mean her direct quotes were was to me I was in uh, yours mine and ours I was packing her bags in the supermarket I was a bagger and uh, at the end of the take she said you're a very fine actor, but if you ever get in my light again, I don't think you'll work here again. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, just came up to me and laid it down, just like that. And the other thing is that as soon as the director yelled cut, she was surrounded by makeup people, lipstick, eye makeup, and hair. And they would just just glom onto her face. They would work her face. <laughs> they would surround her. You couldn't talk to her. Or if you talked to her, she was talking while they were putting lipstick on her. She always looked perfect. When she said to me, she said that out, out, of, the, uh, out of the group, out of her group. She, you know, she kind of parted two people and said, you're very talented, but if you ever get in my light again, you won't work here again. And she was a little angry at me. There was anger in her voice. Uh, so a little passive aggressive anger, but anger. Acting's so interesting to me because in, in a sense it's, requires egocentricity surety there's a difference but most people have this you know wired to their ego well yes and that the world revolves around them and there's really nobody more important than the self right so that's why there's lucille ball and that's why there's brian cranston in the sense of one is ego and the other is technique Ah. now she has the technique she's a great actress but she has thickness of makeup that they're putting on her, slathering her with makeup. That's her ego. Let's talk about old Joe. Old Joe, yeah. How did that happen? It, it happened real quick. Again, I get this call, you know, get down there right away. Uh, it's Breaking Bad. Now, I was a fan of Breaking Bad, so I was watching Breaking Bad. So there's a difference between getting a job and being in something you're a fan of. That's like a fantasy. I get down there, I rush down there. I, uh, they gave me the sides, but it was only five lines. And there was, you know, a tripod and a little camera, storeboard camera, and an empty room and a chair. Hi, Larry. Uh, you, you here to do uh, Old Joe? Uh, yeah. And I'm wondering, where is everybody? Isn't it just this girl? And so I had a chip on my shoulder. And she says, well, you want to talk about it? I go, no, let's just do it. You know, again, somebody got fired. Why didn't they call me first? I don't know. Just let me do this thing. She says, okay, you know, I'll read with you. And I go, that's really, I didn't say this, but again, that's really great, I'm thinking, you know. She's going to be reading it, so she's looking down, so there's no relationship going on. So I got to forget about her and just concentrate on getting my part into the lens. So, you know, all right, man, fine, whatever. I'm going to be fired anyway. Okay, fine. So I just go go to, you know. But you had an idea of who old Joe was. Oh, yeah, because old Joe was my Uncle Murray. I mean, verbatim, out of the box, man. He was just, I was just doing my Uncle Murray. I didn't have to do any backstory or any thinking. I could be a stand-up comedian and do my Uncle Murray. 
you know. So it, I, there was nothing to discuss, really. So that's what, it, I mean, he raised me, my uncle, more, just as much as my father did. So she's, you know, looking down at the page and she's reading blah, 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 and I'm going blah, 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 and blah, 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 blah. Okay, thank you. Do, do, do you want me to do it again? And she says, well, do you want to do it again? And I go, well, not if you don't want me to do it again. I said, well, if you want to do it again, you can do it again. I said, if I don't have to do it again, I don't want to do it again. And she says, well, you don't have to do it again. I said, then I'm not going to do it again. And I left. She didn't say anything like, I think I could do it better. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. <laughs> now it's great. I got the audition. I got through that. I'm, I'm okay. I got the call saying, you're hired. He liked you. Okay, great. They fly me down to New Mexico and they drive me an hour out into the middle of the desert to this junk heap. There's really, there really is a junkyard in the middle of the desert. Uh, so that's where they're shooting. I get out there, I put on my costume, you know, and I get out there in my Winnebago and they, the AD brings me into the Winnebago. And they generally put, always, you know, they always put your sides on the desk, that's your part. And it's and generally open to your part. And I look at it, and it's not five lines. It's an entire one-page full speech. An entire speech. I've been around long enough to know that if you give me that much, I have to have it in advance three days minimum. That, that, that's almost in my contract, but it's always spoken. I said, what's this? said, Vince liked your audition so much, he had them write you a speech. I go, no, man. No, you see, I, I'm dyslexic. I have ADHD. No, I can't do this. I have to have it three days in advance. No, and I'm starting to get weird, see? And I, of course, I haven't fired myself yet. I wasn't thinking that way. And he's getting weirded out. He doesn't want to be there now, the AD. So he says, look, man, I got to get rid of the set. I, this, this. I said, well, how long do I have? How long do I have? And he goes, two hours. Two hours, man? I can, no, that's not enough time. And he said, well, I, I got to go, man. And he leaves. So I'm left there with the script. And I go, holy cow, man. And then I open it up. And yeah, and there's the other five lines. So I got a, five lines plus this page speech. You know, oh, what the hell are they doing, man? No, no. I'm yelling at the mirror. No, 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 no. I try to memorize it. I really do. I try to memorize it. I took about a half hour memorizing it. And then I finally go look for the AD. I find him. I say, hey, man, look, uh, you don't understand. And I, I lay, oh, I got dyslexic. I'm ADHD. They have to send it to me. It's very logical, you know, uh, very cogent. And he goes, so here's the thing. Why are you telling me this? He say, well, I, I got to talk to Vince. I got I to I talk to Vince. Vince isn't here. All right, never mind, never mind. I'll deal with this. Because I, I didn't want to fire myself. I, I wanted to do this. This is, this is my favorite show. And then the guy knock on the door, you're up. Wow, man, okay. And that's when I fired myself. When, they, when the guy said, you're up, I go, okay, I'm going to get fired because there's no way I can memorize this. So it's fait accompli. It's no sense in getting crazy or hooping and hollering. And I followed him to the set, and I go, but as I'm walking, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out, and I go, okay, wait a minute. If they break it up, if they break this shot into sections, I probably could pull it off. Okay, cool. So now I'm, I'm, I'm rehired. I'm going to the director, and I go, I'm just going to lay this on him. He, he'll love this. So I go, ah, hey, Larry, how you doing? You know, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm great. Okay. Uh, listen, I want to talk to you. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. About how we do this? Yeah, sure. Uh, listen. Um, we're going to like break this up, right? No, no, no. We're going to walk and talk. You know, you just get way down there and you're just going to walk straight to the camera and just do the whole thing. Well, why? Something wrong? No, that's fine. Okay, cool. I get down there. They say, okay, you ready, Larry? Yeah, okay. Okay, and action. And I, okay, and I start walking and talking. And I get the first line out. I know the first line. I get the first line out. And, and then I'm like improvising. I'm just trying, I'm pulling what it is and that, this is why it was so hard also in front, was that it was just legalese of why the cop I was talking to cannot go into the Winnebago where Aaron and uh, Brian are hiding. And it's got to be legal things pertaining to property rights and you know police and 
But it's, I'm trying to remember the script and blah, 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 blah. But I'm fired. I know I'm fired. So I'm, re I'm relaxed and I'm just talking and walking. And then I go, okay, when I get about this far from the camera, stop, cut, I'm fired. And he goes, okay, Larry, uh, let's just do it once more. Okay. And as I'm walking back, I'm thinking, did I memorize that whole thing because I was so relaxed? And now I can just, even if I do it, he's got it in the can. I'm cool. I go, holy cow, that's amazing. Wow, how the mind works. I get back down there, and then I see the script girl. The script girl is a lady who uh, makes sure that you say the words as written on the script. She comes up to me, and I go, okay, what did I miss? She says, well, pretty much the whole speech uh, you didn't get. <laughs> so there you, I'm fired. Uh, so I so uh, I said, well, I got the gist of it right. And she says, the director wants you to read it as written. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. I hear Larry. Is there any problems? No, it's okay. Fine. And then he starts to walk towards me with the book. And he, so I'm just calmly waiting. She's calmly waiting. And he gets to me. And then the cameraman yells from the camera. He says, uh, hey, uh, Sid, uh, aren't you going to be near the camera? And he goes, no, I'm going to walk with my actor. I go, oh, no, man. No, you're not going to walk next to me with an open book. And that's like a kid. No, you're not going to do that. I'd rather be fired. No. Uh, but... And he says, is something wrong, Larry? And I go, no, it's fine. Whatever you want. And I go, okay. And he says, okay, ready? You ready, Larry? Yeah. Roll camera, action, Larry. And I'm walking and I'm talking. I'm doing the same thing. I've been trying to make up the thing, blah, blah, blah. I get to the uh, end. He goes, cut. And he turns to me. He says, thank you, Larry. Okay, let's move on. Next shot. What's going on? I did my five lines in the morning. So I'm now wrapped. I'm finished. And they say, oh, thanks, Larry. Larry's rap. And they get in the car an hour back, and then I fly back. Nobody, and I, I, I still can't figure it out, and I figure I have to wait to see the show. I got to see this show. I don't know what the hell just happened. If you watch the, that scene, here's what happens. You see me, and I'm standing way down there, and then there's a close-up of me, and I say my first line, which I remembered. And then they cut to the cop listening to me, and as I'm talking, this jargon, this and then you go inside, then you go back to the cop listening to me, and then you go to me because I said a right line, and then you go back inside and they're talking, and you hear me, my voiceover, because I'm continuing the speech over, but they're talking, blah, 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 blah. Then you cut to the cop listening to me, then back inside, back to the cop, then me, I said something interesting, not the line, but a line that fit. And then it's back to me, back to them, back to inside, and then I and you still hear me over them, and then you cut to me with the closing line, which fit. I am on screen less than ten seconds. What he did, and he knew it from the probably ten seconds after I started that he doesn't have it memorized, but he's saying stuff I can cobble together if I do a voiceover and just stay on him. Uh, stay on the inside the Winnebago and the cop and just cut to him whenever he's got a good line. You know, one that, that is perfect. So that was your first scene, your first yeah. episode. Right. And then what happened? Because you came back. And one of the reasons I fire myself early is I tend to beat myself up and that was, that's protection. So in other words, a lot of it goes, is in my mind, the, the, the stress, the strain. But outwardly, I, you know, I, I seem pretty calm. Like, you know, when I say to myself, I'm fired, you know, and I walk out on the set, I mean, I, I, I no longer care about this part in that I'm trying, racing to memorize it, even though, you know, I'm not on the set yet, and I think I'm going to be fired. Um, I'm not trying to, you know, memorize it and maybe, listen, when I get there, maybe it'll all come back to me. I'm, I'm, I don't do that kind of crap. If, if I decide, no, this is beyond me, I'm, I'll admit it to myself. Now, a lot of times, I'll, I'll, I'll take a couple of shots at it, but that's, then I 
then I'm not there. Then I haven't said to myself, I'm fired. Which means, I mean, when I say I'm fired, it's Larry, calm down. This is not that important. I mean, that's just code for me. I'm not saying it out loud. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm not a real actor. I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm a funny guy. I'm that guy. People don't even know my name. What am I getting so? I want to do what's in my head, not in... I don't want to do what's in somebody else's head. But it's a, it's a living and it helps me get to where I want to go because the technique, you, you can't buy the technique of acting, working professionally in Hollywood or uh, you know on a, on a stage in front of a real audience. That's pro work and that's technique and I learned from that. So disappointment is sort of a form of chip on the shoulder. Yeah, or a safety valve. Yeah. It's just, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get mixed up. It's like getting in, you know, this is a date. I don't want to get involved. <laughs> you know, this is not a marriage. Are you running the risk of getting labeled as difficult? You bet. But I don't, I don't care. I mean, I do care because it's less money, it's less jobs. You might not get the job you really want because you're difficult, but I can't. It, it just it comes out. It just like explodes. I mean, it doesn't explode, but I can't. I, maybe I'm unwilling to control it. If it's there, I just let it go. It's almost like an impulse. It's an impulse. It's part of the ADHD and the dyslexia. I don't know what's going on because most anger is based on not understanding the true reality of the situation. If you don't understand the reality, you can't get mad. You understand. And I've known you a long time and you've always been a perfectly friendly person. You've never got me pissed off, Ted. (laughs) Well, keep that in mind. Well, that was scary. <laughs> but, you know, perhaps the most uh, intense uh, professional experience that, that Larry's going to talk about was in his role as Mr. Heckles in the TV sitcom Friends. I want you to hear this story. Oh, my God. This is the time when his impulses got the better of him. Larry, yeah. professionally, do you have a reputation of being difficult? Yeah. You do? Oh, Definitely. Have you ever wondered why I've never been a regular on a TV show? Because you wear out your welcome? I, I think I say inappropriate things or I'm not a member of the team. I think. You're not a I team mean, player. I'm not a team player, but, but I don't go in saying I'm not going to play on your team. I go in trying to play on your team. It's just I don't know the rules here, you know, or uh, y- your rules are kind of weird or I don't like your rules, or uh, I can do your rules, but I don't like you. You know, and, and that, I mean, just simply, I mean, the, the atmosphere on um, Friends, when I got on there, was, was very, I don't, I, what's the word? Clickish? Oh, man, yeah, exact word. Cliquish, yeah, wow. Just like some high school, it's like, was run like a high school. They would click up, you know. As soon as they would cut, all the friends would go together. The actors. The actors. And it was very hard to get in there. So I didn't talk to anybody ever on the set. Nobody. Um, And um, I'll give you a perfect example. The rule is if you're on five shows, each one of those shows is a one-off. You get paid as a day player, you know, for the week. But even as a co-star, you get paid one paycheck each time. But if you're on six times, you become, you're now a, a recurring. The recurring salary is a huge bump up. I mean, nothing like what you get for one week's work. They had built an apartment for Mr. Heckles thinking he's going to be um, a regular, uh, a recurring. So I know I'm coming back. I get a call from my agent saying, hey, Larry, friends just called. They want you for another show. Fifth show, I got good news and bad news. The fifth show. One more, and I'm a recurring. The first time, you know. You must be feeling pretty good by now. Oh, yeah, because I was already, you know, buying a house and stuff. I go, it's a fifth show. Great, one more. What's the bad news? He says, you have a heart attack and die in this show. What? They killed you killed me on the fifth show blocking my house now it's not that oh i can't get a house now it was they just took the house away that's what went through my mind Uh uh-oh yeah they took the house away i had a house 
for 10 seconds and they took it away. And that sat with me until I had to go in the next day to the first day of rehearsal. I didn't know that the first day of rehearsal the next day was the first day of rehearsal for the beginning of the new season, which is a party. It's the new season. So there's about 150 people in, in a room where they're serving, you know, scrambled eggs and champagne and, uh, you know, salmon and all that stuff, you know, and shrimp. And there's a, it's a big party. I, I didn't know this. So I'm, I'm walking, parking my car in the parking lot, and I'm walking, and I'm just getting myself angrier and angrier. And I don't know why I'm doing this, but I know, God, why? Why did they, all the, you know, no. And I get in, and all I want to do is I want to talk to the producer. I don't know what's going on. I just want to talk to the producer. I'm totally blind. I said, well, you know, where, where, where are they rehearsing this time? I thought they were rehearsing on stage. No, they're rehearsing in the room upstairs. I go upstairs, and there's 150 people. I don't even see them. I just, I'm looking for the producers. There's three of them, two men and a woman. And I see them around those little champagne tables where you just sit around, uh, you stand around them. They have them all over the room. And they have the, you know, all the food stuff. And so I just march right up to them. You know, I just plow, I wasn't plowing through, but I walk really fast through and I get up there and they turn, I just, they see me coming, they kind of turn to me and I have little smiles on their face, opening season. And they start to say, they do, they, they say, hey Larry, how you doing? Well, welcome. I say, what the hell did you people do? What did you do? You killed me? I yelled it. I yelled it. Sorry, I couldn't quite hear you. <laughs> <laughs> And they're just looking at me with stark horror, and the room went quiet. You know, all these hundred people, you know, on these little tables with their drinks in their hands. The room went quiet. And I just kept it up, and I said, why? Why did you do that? And, and I'm waiting for an answer. A civil, <laughs> cogent, intelligent answer. Very, very calmly, very quietly, she says, uh, Larry, do you think we could talk about this a little later? She hit, hit it right, just bullseye, man. I just realized, what the hell? I just unleashed. And they said very quietly, um, okay, right. And they just wheeled on my heel, and I headed for the craft service table. And the people at the craft service table cleared. <laughs> they just walked away from the craft service table, just like a, an opening, like a wave, just <laughs> but like like parting of the sea. So I'm there at the, and I'm, I'm why am I here? I, it's a safe zone. That that was all I f was thinking, you know. And I'm, and I'm I'm looking what what should I eat? What should I do? I should do something. And then this kid comes over. He must be about I don't know 17, 16 or something. Must have been an extra with somebody. He comes right up to me, right, and he stands right next to me. He says, "Dude, that was so cool." <laughs> <laughs> so for the rest of the week. And nobody would come near me. I mean, it was just really weird, the weirdest. And I went to the writer and I go, hey, what, what was that all about? Why did, why did you give him a... I mean, they had built a room. So I don't understand the logic of it. He said, look, man, I'm, I'm just new here. They said, you know, write a character that's a favorite of yours and write the episode about that character. And you're my favorite character. So I wrote the episode about you and you were alive. You know, I didn't kill you. He said, but they came to me after the episode was written and I handed it in and you were alive. They came to me and they said, um, I believe it was Matthew, but I could be wrong, but Matthew. They said, the character Matthew in Friends has been, is moving out, which we already wrote and, and, that, and that's already down. That's, that's been done. So he's, uh, he's getting ready to move out. But we realized if he moves out, how is he going to be a friend? He has to move out into another apartment in the building. And we have Mr. Heckle's set already built. So we'll, so that's empty. So we'll, because nobody's seen it yet. So we're going to move Matthew into that apartment. So we have to get rid of Mr. Heckle. So just kill him. Give him a heart attack. It wasn't against you, Larry. It was they needed a place to put Matthew and they didn't want to deal and juggle with. So listen, let's just get rid of Larry. 
It's, it's not his apartment anymore. And we're not going to build another apartment if we bring Larry back. So that was how it went down. So it was very logical, again, a corporate decision, which didn't have me in mind. Some friends. Yeah. <laughs> right. Friends, my ass. <laughs> so that's how it went down. He said, I really apologize. I didn't do it. I, I, I really liked your uh, character. So I just did my part, and then I, I, I went home. So yeah, it's, it gets really hairy, you know. But, you know, like Shakespeare said, you know, the worst turns to laughter. This experience that he had with the friends situation led him to some soul-searching and therapy. Uh-huh. to reconcile with his conflicted nature and ultimately enable Larry to, in his words, turn tragedy to laughter. Well, the opposite of gravity is levity. It turns out with me always, you know, I have a lot of disasters in my life that, that turn to laughter because a, a psychologist who I was going to, like a psychiatrist, you know, he, he, he gave me the clue. I was, you know, pouring my heart out about my dad. My dad and I never got along. I mean, he was a bad dad, man. Uh, that'd be a good title for a, new, a movie, Bad Dad. Uh, but he was a really bad dad. I mean, you know, belt, you know, straps, belt, beating me and shit. So he said to me, and I'm pouring my heart out, and he was laughing. The, the therapist was kind of laughing at what my father was saying to me or why he was saying it to me. And I stopped and I said, hey, man, you, are, you, are you laughing at me? He said, well, you know, what's going on? What, what you're telling me, that's funny. I said, no, it's not funny. I'm pouring my heart out to me about what my father did to me and all the problems he caused to me. And I'm pouring it out to me and you're laughing at me? He said, you don't think that's funny, Larry? What, what you're telling me about your dad? I go, no. And he goes, well, Larry, you're going to have to keep coming here until you do. And I thought, wow, cool, man. So that's why all these tragedies, you know, these uh, that turn to laughter, I make them turn to laughter because that's a cool thing. Wow, that's an interesting twist. Oh, man, that was like that was like hitting me with a two by four upside the head. What was he finding funny? I, I pressed him a little more. I wanted more explanation because that really had hurt me. He, uh, he said, look, Larry, I do a lot of child psychology. I, I'm a child psychologist and therapist also. Um, and I find that all the things that are wrong with the children I see has nothing to do with the child. The child's a perfectly healthy. It's the parents. But I can't tell the child or the parents that because if I tell the parents, you know, you're fucking up your kid, they'll just take the kid away from me and he loses all protection. At least I'm giving him some help in protecting the damage that they do. So I was kind of pissed off that this was a consortium of psychologists. It was cheaper that way. So I was assigned to this psychologist. They give you a little test to see who would be best suited for you and you for the psychologist. And I was now pissed off that they had assigned me to a child psychologist. <laughs> so I got chips all over the place, on my shoulders, on my knees, well, I, I on see, my I head. I can see internalizing that. <laughs> so I, but I let that slide. I took that as a very good piece of advice. There was something I wrote when I was a child, maybe about nine or ten, because he used to write... Be careful with the artists because they have no walls to hide behind. And I was talking about myself as a child because I knew I was artistic, but my parents had had no truck with that. They wanted a, a lawyer or a doctor who could take care of them in their old age with money or with medicine. Uh, and and they, there was no two ways about it. I mean, I had nothing to say about it, and so I wrote that down. And I found that to be true with most artists. I mean, uh, most artists, you know, have a point at which, uh, you know, a button, you know, a, a red flag. Yeah, don't go beyond this. Is inappropriate behavior. All that stuff, getting mad, firing myself, is to protect myself from going into inappropriate mode. I like this whole thing about inappropriate Inappropriate Hollywood. <laughs> inappropriate Hankin. That's great. If you don't use it, I think it's great. But then I'm going to for, for the album. It's just inappropriate. <laughs>
That's <laughs> <laughs> a great word. So I, I give it to you, man. Well, that was a very interesting trip to Larryland, I oh, have to say, man. from Who's Born, No Traveler Returns. Aye, there's the rub. And you know, he's still at it. That's the joy of childish nature. We never grow truly old in our profession. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And I'm Phil Proctor. Thanks to Paul Wilson and Larry Hankin. And to Shay J for the fish and chips. Until next time, stay safe and keep your head down. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and special guests Larry Hankin and Paul Wilson. The Giant Toad and Bob Dylan at the Met, written and performed by the Firesign Theater. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a Ernest Guy. Join us for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for boomers. Okay? Okay.